Chapter 8 of The Defiant Agents This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis The Defiant Agents by Andre Norton Chapter 8 they burst through a last wide band of mist into a wilderness of tall grass and shrubs. Travis heard the coyotes give tongue, but it was too late. Out of nowhere whirled a leather loop, settling about his chest, snapping his arms tight to his body, taking him off his feet with a jerk to be dragged helplessly along the ground behind a galloping horse. A tawny fury sprung in the air to snap at the horse's head. Travis kicked fruitlessly, trying to regain his feet as the horse reared and fought against the control of his shouting rider. All through the melee the Apache heard Kadesa's shrilly screaming words he did not understand. Travis was on his knees, coughing in the dust, exerting the muscles in his chest and shoulders to loosen the lariat. On either side of him the coyotes wove a snarling pattern of defiance dashing back and forth to present no target for the enemy, yet keeping the excited horses so stirred up that the riders could use neither ropes nor blades. Then Kadesa ran between two of the ringing horses to Travis and jerked at the loop about him. The tough braided leather eased its hold, and he was able to gasp in full lungfuls of air. She was still shouting, but the tone had changed from one of recognition to a definite scolding. Travis won to his feet just as a rider who had lassoed him finally got his horse under rein and dismounted. Holding the rope, the man walked hand over hand toward them, as Travis back in the Arizona range would have approached a nervous unschooled pony. The Mongol was an inch or so shorter than the Apache, and his face was young, though he had a drooping mustache bracketing his mouth with slender spear points of black hair. His breeches were tucked into high red boots, and he wore a loose felt jacket patterned with the same elaborate embroidery Travis had seen on Cadessus. On his head was a hat with a wide fur border, in spite of the heat, and that too bore touches of scarlet and gold design. Still holding his lariat, the Mongol reached Kadesa and stood for a moment, eyeing her up and down before he asked a question. She gave an impatient twitch to the rope. The coyote snarled, but the Apache thought the animals no longer considered the danger imminent. This is my brother, Hulagar. Kadesa made the introduction over her shoulder. He does not have your speech. Hulagar not only did not understand, he was also impatient. He jerked at the rope with such sudden force that Travis was almost thrown. Then Kadesa dragged us furiously on the lariat in the other direction and burst into a soaring harangue which drew the rest of the men closer. Travis flexed his upper arms, and the slack gained by Kadesa's action made the lariat give again. He studied the Tatar outlaws. There were five of them besides Hulagar, lean men, hard-faced, narrow-eyed. The ragged clothing of three pieced out with scraps of hide. 
Besides the swords with the curved blades, they were armed with bows, two to each man, one long, one shorter. One of the riders carried a lance, long tassels of woolly hair streaming from below its head. Travis saw in them a formidable array of barbaric fighting men. But he thought that man for man, the Apaches could not only take on the Mongols with confidence, but might well defeat them. The Apache had never been a hot-headed, ride-for-glory fighter like the Cheyenne, the Sioux, and the Comanche of the open plains. He estimated the odds against him, used ambush, trick, and every feature of the countryside as weapon and defense. Fifteen Apache fighting men under Chief Geronimo had kept five thousand American and Mexican troops in the field for a year and had come off victorious for the moment. Travis knew the tales of Genghis Khan and his formidable generals who swept over Asia into Europe, unbeaten and seemingly undefeatable. But they had been a wild wave, fed by a reservoir of manpower from the steeps of their homeland, utilizing driven walls of captives to protect their own men in city assaults and attacks. He doubted if even that endless sea of men could have won the Arizona desert defended by Apaches under Cochise, Victorio, or Magnus Colorado. The white man had done it by superior arms and attrition, but bow against bow, knife against sword, craft and cunning against craft and cunning, he did not think so. Hudegar dropped the end of the lariat, and Cadessa swung around, loosening the loop so that the rope fell to Travis's feet. The Apache stepped free of it, turned and passed between two of the horsemen to gather up the bow he had dropped. The coyotes had gone with him, and when he turned again to face the company of Tartars, both animals crowded past him to the entrance of the valley, plainly urging him to retire there. The horsemen had faced about also, and a warrior with the lance balanced the shaft of the weapon in his hand as if considering the possibility of trying to spear Travis. But just then Cadessa came up, towing Hulagar by a firm hold on his sash belt. I have told this one, she reported to Travis, how it is between us, and that you also are enemy to those who hunt us. It is well that you sit together beside a fire and talk of these things. Again that boom-boom broke her speech, coming from farther out in the open land. You will do this? She made of it a half-question, half-statement. Travis glanced about him. He could dodge back into the misty valley of the towers before the Tartars could ride him down. However, if he could patch up some kind of truce between his people and the outlaws, the Apaches would have only the Reds from the settlement to watch. Too many times in Terran past had war on two fronts been disastrous. I come, carrying this and not pulled by your ropes. He held up his bow in an exaggerated gesture so that Hulagar could understand. Coiling the lariat, the mongrel looked from the Apache bow to Travis. Slowly and with obvious reluctance, he nodded agreement. At Hulagar's call, the lancer rode up to the waiting Apache, stretched out a booted foot in the heavy stirrup, and held down a hand to bring Travis up behind him, riding double. 
Kadesa mounted in the same fashion behind her brother. Travis looked at the coyotes. Together the animals stood in the door to the tower valley, and neither made any move to follow as the horses trotted off. He beckoned with his hand and called to them. Heads up, they continued to watch him go in company with the Mongols. Then, without any reply to his coaxing, they melted back into the mist. For a moment, Travis was tempted to slide down and run the risk of taking a lance point between the shoulders as he followed Najinta and Nalikianadu into retreat. He was startled, jarred by the new awareness of how much he had come to depend on the animals. Ordinarily, Travis Fox was not one to be governed by the whooshes of a Mbaa, intelligent and unanimal-like as it might be. This was an affair of men, and coyotes had no part in it. Half an hour later, Travis sat in the outlaw camp. There were fifteen Mongols in sight, a half-dozen women and two children adding to the count. On a hillock near their yurts, the round brush and hide shelters, not too different from the wickiups of Travis's own people, was a crude drum. A hide stretched taut over a hollowed section of log, and next to that stood a man wearing tall pointed cap, a red robe, and a girdle from which swung a fringe of small bones, tiny animal skulls, and polished bits of stone and carved wood. It was this man's efforts which sent the boom-boom sounding at intervals over the landscape. Was this a signal, part of a ritual? Travis was not certain, though he guessed that the drummer was either medicine man or shaman, and so of some power in this company. Such men were credited with the ability to prophesize and also endowed with mediumship between man and spirit in the old days of the great hordes. The Apache evaluated the rest of the company. As was true of his own party, these men were much the same age, young and vigorous and it was also apparent that Hulagar held a position of some importance among them, if he were not their chief. After a last resounding roll on the drum, the shaman thrust the sticks into his girdle and came down to the fire at the center of the camp. He was taller than his fellows, pole thin under his robes, his face narrow, clean-shaven, with brows arched by nature to give him an unchanging expression of skepticism. He strode along, his tinkling collection of charms providing him with a not unmusical accompaniment, and came to stand directly before Travis, eyeing him carefully. Travis copied his silence in what was close to a duel of wills. There was that in the shaman's narrow green eyes which suggested that if Hulagar did in fact lead these fighting men, he had an advisor of determination and intelligence behind him. This is Menlik, Kadesa did not push past the men to the fireside, but her voice carried. Hulagar growled at his sister, but his admiration made no impression on her, and she replied in as hot a tone. The shaman's hand went up, silencing both of them. You are who? Like Kadesa, Menlik spoke a heavily accented English. I am Travis Fox of the Apaches. The Apaches, the shaman repeated. You are of the West, the American West, then. You know much, man of spirit talk. 
One remembers. At times, one remembers, Menlik answered almost absently. How does an Apache find his way across the stars? The same way Menlik and his people did, Travis returned. You were sent to settle this planet, and so were we. There are many more of you, countered Menlik swiftly. Are there not many of the Horde? Would one man or three or four be sent to hold a world? Travis fenced. You hold the north, we the south of this land. But they are not governed by a machine, Kadesa cut in. They are free. Menlik frowned at the girl. Woman, this is a matter for warriors. Keep your tongue silent between your jaws. She stamped one foot, standing with her fist on her hips. I am a daughter of the Blue Wolf, and we are all warriors, men and women alike. So shall we be as long as the Horde is not free to ride where we wish. These men have won their freedom. It is well that we learn how. Menlich's expression did not change, but his lids drooped over his eyes as a murmur of what might be agreement came from the group. More than one of them must have understood enough English to translate for the others. Travis wondered about that. Had these men and women, who had outwardly reverted to the life of their nomad ancestors, once been well educated in the modern sense, educated enough to learn the basic language of the nation their rulers had set up as their principal enemy? So you ride the land south of the mountains, the shaman continued. That is true. Then why did you come hither? Travis shrugged. Why does anyone ride or travel into new lands? There is a desire to see what may lie beyond. Or to scout before the march of warriors, Menlik snapped. There is no peace between your rulers and mine. Do you ride now to take the herds and pastures of the horde? Or to try to do so? Travis turned his head deliberately from side to side, allowing them all to witness his slow and open contemptuous appraisal of their camp. This is your horde, shaman, fifteen warriors? Must have changed since the days of Timujan, has it not? What do you know of Timujan? You, who are a man of no ancestors out of the West. What do I know of Timujan? That he was a leader of warriors and became Genghis Khan, the great lord of the East. But the Apaches had their warlords also, rider of barren lands, and I am of those who raided over two nations when Victorio and Cochise scattered their enemies as a man scatters a handful of dust in the wind. You talk bold, Apache. There was a hint of threat in that. I speak as any warrior shaman, or are you so used to talking with spirits instead of men that you do not realize that? He might have been alienating the shaman by such a sharp reply, but Travis thought he judged the temper of these people. To face them boldly was the only way to impress them. They would not treat with an inferior, and he was already at a disadvantage coming on foot without any backing and force, into a territory held by horsemen who were suspicious and jealous of their recently acquired freedom. His only chance was to establish himself as an equal and then tried to convince them that Apache and Tartar-Mongol 
had a common cause against the Reds who controlled the settlement on the northern plains. Menlik's right hand went to his sash girdle and plucked out a carved stick which he waved between them, muttering phrases Travis could not understand. Had the shaman retreated so far along the road to his past that he now believed in his own supernatural powers? Or was this to impress his watching followers? You call upon your spirits for aid, Midmuk, but the Apache has the companionship of the Gaian. Ask of Kadesa, who hunts with the fox in the wilds. Travis's sharp challenge stopped that wand in midair. Menlik's head swung to the girl. He hunts with wolves who think like men. She supplied the information the shaman would not openly ask for. I have seen them act as his scouts. This is no spirit thing, but real and of this world. Any man may train a dog to his bidding, Menlik spat. Does a dog obey orders which are not said aloud? These brown wolves come and set before him, look into his eyes, and then he knows what lies within their heads, and they know what he would have them do. This is not the way of a master of hounds with his pack. Again the murmur ran around the camp as one or two translated. Menlik frowned. Then he rammed his sorcerer's wand back into his sash. If you are a man of power, such powers, he said slowly, then you may walk along where those who walk with spirits go into the mountains. He then spoke over his shoulder in his native tongue, and one of the women reached behind her into a hut, brought out a skin bag and a horn cup. Kadesa took the cup from her and held it while the other woman poured a white liquid from the bag to fill it. Kadesa passed the cup to Menlik. He pivoted with it in his hand, dribbling expertly over his brim a few drops at each point of the compass, chanting as he moved. Then he sucked in a mouthful of the contents before presenting the vessel to Travis. The Apache smelled the same sour scent that had clung to the emptied bag in the foothills, and another part of memory supplied him with the nature of the drink. This was Kumas, a fermented mare's milk, which was the wine and water of the steeps. He forced himself to swallow a draught, though it was alien to his taste, and passed the cup back to Menlik. The shaman emptied the horn and, with that, set aside ceremony. With an upraised hand, he beckoned Travis to the fire again, indicating a pot set on the coals. Rest, eat, he bade abruptly. Night was gathering in. Travis tried to calculate how far Tassay must have backtracked to the ranchera. He thought that he could have already made the pass and be within a day and a half from the Apache camp if he pushed on, as he would. As to where the coyotes were, Travis had no idea, but it was plain that he himself must remain in this encampment for the night or risk rousing the Mongols' suspicion once more. He ate of the stew, spearing chunks out of the pot with the point of his knife, and it was not until he sat back, his hunger appeased, that the shaman dropped down beside him. The Katan Kadesa says that when she was slave to the collar, you did not feel its chains, he began. Those who rule you are not my overlords. The bonds I set upon your minds do not touch me. Travis hoped that that was the truth, 
and his escape that morning had not been just a fluke. This could be, for you and I are not of one blood, Menlik agreed. Tell me, how did you escape their bonds? The machine which held us so was broken, Travis replied with a portion of the truth, and Menlik sucked in his breath. The machines, always the machines, he cried hoarsely. A thing which can set in a man's head and make him do what it will against his will. It is demon sin. There are other machines to be broken, Apache. Words will not break them, Travis pointed out. Only a fool rides to his death without hope of striking a single blow before he chokes on the blood in his throat, Menlik retorted. We cannot use bow or two-war against weapons which flame and kill quicker than any storm lightning. And always the mine machines can make a man drop his knife and stand helplessly waiting for the slave collar to be set on his neck. Travis asked a question of his own. I know that they can bring a collar part way into this mountain, for this very day I saw its effect upon the maiden. But there are many places in the hills well set for ambushes, and these unaffected by the machine could be waiting there. Would there be many machines so that they could send out again and again? Menlik's bony hand played with his wand. Then a slow smile curved his lips into the guise of a hunting cat's noiseless snarl. There is meat in that pot, Apache, rich meat, good for the filling of a lean belly. So men whose minds a machine could not trouble. Such men to be waiting in ambush for the taking of the men who used such a machine, yes. But here would have to be bait, very good bait for such a trap. Lord of wiles, never do those others come far into the mountains. Their flyer does not fit well here and they do not trust traveling on horseback. They were greatly angered to come so far in to reach Cadessa, though they could not have been too close, or you would not have escaped at all. Yes, strong bait. Such bait as perhaps the knowledge that there were strangers across the mountains? Midlick turned his wand about in his hands. He was no longer smiling, and his glance at Travis was sharp and swift. Do you set as Khan in your tribe, Lord? I said as one they will listen to. Travis hoped that was so. Whether Buck and the moderates would hold clan leadership upon his return was a fact he could not count upon as certain. This is a thing which we must hold counsel over, Menlik continued. But it is an idea of power. Yes, one to think about, Lord, and I shall think. He got up and moved away. Travis blinked at the fire. He was very tired, and he disliked sleeping in this camp. But he must not go without the rest his body needed to supply him with a clear head in the morning. And not showing uneasiness might be one way of winning Menlik's confidence. This concludes the reading of Chapter 8.